Hey everybody, welcome back to Swedenborg in Life. This is another installment in our 10 Questions series. My name is Curtis Childs and I'm the host. And the deal with the 10 Questions series is every time we do a live show, we get more questions than we can answer on air, which is awesome. We're really glad that you are interested enough to ask questions in the first place. And we want to honor that by taking time to get to those questions. So here we're going to take 10 of them that we picked to try to get a little bit from each segment of the asking population. And we're going to put our best, uh, best hat on. What do you, we're going to put our best uh, question answering hat on and try to answer these. And uh, hopefully it's something that's useful. We'll get, we'll get the closest we can to providing a full answer to each question. So here they are. Hope you like it. See you at the end. Hootenanny Guide asks, I'm curious as to the views on astrology. Hinduism is quite deep into birth stars, nakshatras. What were Swedenborg's views on this subject? So I have a very limited knowledge of nakshatras. I'm aware of them, but I don't really understand it or know the ins and outs. Uh, and I am certainly fascinated by all the different forms of astrology that are around the world, but I'm not sort of like deeply into it. I'm not reading a daily horoscope or whatever. So I just want to give that sort of, uh, overview of my relationship to astrology. And then I'll say what Swedenborg has to say about it. So Swedenborg doesn't talk about astrology directly. He doesn't make major commentary on it. He'll reference astrologers mostly in a negative sense, people who are trying to understand the future when really that's sort of beyond their ability. Uh, but you can sort of indirectly infer some things about astrology based on what Swedenborg teaches. And one of those things is that physical things in the world reflect spiritual realities. So the prevalence of astrology throughout history and across cultures, I think it must have some connection to a spiritual reality. And so on this, Swedenborg writes in Arcana Celestia 5377, section 2, the sun has a correspondence, and so does the moon. For in heaven, the Lord is the sun and the moon too. The fire and heat of the sun, as well as its light, have a correspondence, for it is the Lord's love towards the whole human race that its fire and heat correspond to, and his divine truth that its light corresponds to. The stars, too, have a correspondence, the communities of heaven and their dwelling places being what the stars correspond to. Not that the heavenly communities dwell in the stars, but that they have been set in order in the same kind of way as the stars. Everything under the sun has a correspondence. Every single thing beneath it in the animal kingdom and every single thing beneath it in the vegetable kingdom. And unless the spiritual world were flowing into them all, every one, they would instantly break down and fall into pieces. So one spiritual truth I see connected to the idea of astrology is that there's meaning and purpose to our life and to every life. And everybody is connected. So our alignment with the stars at the time of our birth could be an image or, or even a real correspondence with our unique network of connection to the rest of the human race, um, which is pretty cool. But that's not to say that there isn't a concern about the practice of astrology from a Swedenborgian perspective, like I mentioned earlier. Um, and that's the potential for it to be used or believed in a way that would limit or take away a person's freedom in spiritual matters. So our freedom in spiritual matters is of utmost importance. 
And so to believe in astrology without maintaining our freedom would make us powerless over our destiny. To think that you could read the stars or read somebody's horoscope for you and that just maps out your life is taking something away that is spiritually critical to us. And so we're meant to use our intellect and rationality to make informed choices about our lives. Um, We can use information given to us from astrology, but the risk is to fall for this false idea that our destiny is set in stone. So we can acknowledge that the practice or the basis of astrology has spiritual wisdom at its roots, but it's good to recognize that sources of astrological wisdom today could be totally flawed. Um, and, it, and anything that you read, you can take get guidance from it, but you need to have it be in a context that that you remember you have free choice in how to move forward through your day. Even with this caution about astrological information that you don't want to let it take away your freedom, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater because some people might call astrology, they might discard that as just luck, chance, you know, like what are the chances that you're born on this day in the Northern Hemisphere and Mercury is in whatever and whatever. Um, But what we might call luck, Swedenborg calls divine providence in the outermost parts of life. And so I'm going to read this quote from Divine Providence 2.12 that talks about this. Is there anyone who does not talk about luck? Anyone who does not acknowledge it? After all, we do talk about it, and we know something about it from experience. But does anyone know what it is? No one can deny that it is something, because it does exist, and it does happen, and nothing can be something or happen without some cause. However, we do not know what causes one thing and another, or what causes luck. To prevent denial simply because of ignorance of a cause, think of dice or cards, and either play or talk with players— Do any of them deny luck? They play with it, and it plays with them in quite wonderful ways. Can any succeed against it if it is against them? It laughs at prudence and wisdom then. When you roll the dice or deal the cards, does it not seem as though luck knew and managed the rolls and the deals of your wrists and for some reason favored one player more than another? Can the reason be found anywhere but in divine providence in outermost matters? where in constancy and in change alike, it is working with our prudence in marvelous ways, all the while remaining hidden. He goes on, It is common knowledge that non-Christians once recognized luck and built a temple to her, as the Romans did. There's a great deal to know about this luck, with a capital L, which, as mentioned, is divine providence in outermost matters, that I am not free to disclose... So Swedenborg says maybe there's more about this than he's able to even write about. This has showed me that it is not a figment of our imagination or a trick of the material world or something with no reason. That would actually be nothing at all. Rather, it is a visible witness that divine providence is present in the slightest details of our thoughts and actions. If divine providence is at work in the slightest details of such trivial and inconsequential matters, What else can we expect in the details of matters that are not trivial and inconsequential, in matters of peace and war in this world, and in matters of salvation and life in heaven? So there is divine providence working in the outermost parts of things, and I think that means even in the position, you know, of the earth in relation to the stars when we were born and the timing of it, um, 
and we can sort of honor, like acknowledge and explore that wisdom. But that's also with this element of if you're exploring astrology, keep a foothold in affirming that we have freedom in spiritual matters and that any insight we draw from astrology, it must maintain our freedom to really be useful for us. So that's the last thing I want to say is that uh, there is a Swedenborgian book that touches on astrology, and that is one that was recently published called 12 Qualities of a Spiritual Mind, and it's by the late Harry Barnett, who was a Swedenborgian minister, um, and his sister, Don Barnett's Potts. And it is about the spiritual meaning of the number 12, but it specifically explores correspondences of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, and the 12 signs of the Zodiac. So if you're an astrology person, you can check that out. Uh, and, and yes, so I think in every element of existence, we can marvel at the Lord's infinite wisdom. Chris asks, is there a difference between astral projection and what Swedenborg experienced in the afterlife? Well, it's always important not to try to draw too many generalizations across different types of experience, because with spiritual experience, it's a whole universe, and there are many different kinds of spiritual experience. Now, when you're talking about astral projection, usually you're talking about a state in which the body is completely inert, and you, your consciousness, your astral body, as it's sometimes called, uh, feels itself in quite another dimension, maybe another physical room, maybe another reality entirely. That is usually what's called astral projection. Uh, Out-of-body experiences are very, very similar. My own impression of what Swedenborg was experiencing was not quite so much like that as more a kind of a change in cognitive state. That is to say, um, if you change your level of consciousness, even by a little, uh, reality will seem very different. And uh, if you, you know, change it even more and more and more, you'll start to see things that um, are otherwise considered invisible or even imaginary. This sounds to me more like what Swedenborg experienced than the out-of-body or astral projection uh, experience as such although that is a very ancient uh, uh, experience. Uh, the Apostle Paul alludes to a mystical experience of his own, in which, you know, I knew a man in the spirit, um, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, was taken up to the third heaven. So in any case, um, I, I think there are similarities, but um, I would be careful about making one-on-one -on -one equations. We have a question from Mark which is, is it possible to stray so far from God's love that when we realize our error, we can't get the love back? Or can we have that love back that we once had? So this is a really great question, it taps into some existential anxiety that I think we all share at times. And uh, I think the key to the answer is actually in the question. It asks, what happens when we see our error? You know, and that is what is most fundamental to, uh, to answering the question. So in Swedenborg's worldview, he talks about the, the process of repentance, reformation, and regeneration, in, and how that 
works to recreate ourselves into people that have an angelic nature and who are actively working in partnership with the Lord. And so the way it works is repentance is the part where we recognize our error and we feel regret about it. Reformation is where we understand what truth is telling us about what we did wrong and how we can do better. And then we start to act into that. And regeneration is about when we start to act out of the love for doing what is right and good for other people, not just wanting to avoid doing what's wrong. And so repentance is obviously the beginning of that whole cycle. And so it's really important that we have that basic recognition that we were in error. That's, that's what starts us on the path. Now, as long as we're capable of that basic recognition, then we are able to work to bring ourselves into alignment with God's love. Swedenborg talks about the fact that people who are evil, and really we can recognize this tendency in, in all of us, and this is not like necessarily evil people out there, but evil people categorize or call their evil desires and their evil actions good, right? They love what they are doing, so they call it good. And they cannot recognize that it is in any way wrong. And this fundamental blindness is what prevents them from, from being able to access and be in relationship with God. Now, it's sort of like a cycle. And if, any, and if at any point we can actually break that cycle and recognize where we're in error, then we can start on the path of repentance and reformation. And uh, so it's not so much how far we stray per se, it's how much have we justified and rationalized what we're doing. This is what prevents us from having access to God's love because it's really not possible in, in Swedenborg's theology to lose God's love in any way. It's not something that we lose and then have to get back. God is constantly loving every person and pressing forward with that love in the hopes that we will recognize it and accept it. And it is really us who decide through our actions or decide through our unwillingness to recognize how our will might be in opposition to God, it's us who turn away from God. And uh, it's not so much about having to get the love back. Now, having said that, there are two sort of little addendums to that idea that are important to recognize. And the first is that Swedenborg is really pragmatic, actually, about human nature and how repentance works. And we see a lot of this actually reflected in neuroscience. He talks about how um, habits work, essentially. And if you are in the habit of practicing repentance, then it's going to feel pretty easy for you. If you are not in the habit of it, it's going to feel much harder. You know, and we can see, we can, we can see from science how we... Uh, we reuse pathways in our brains when they, when they get used over and over and over again. Things feel easy to us. 
when we're trying to create new pathways in our brain, it feels so much harder until we actually get used to what we're doing. So, so one point is that if we are not in, in the practice of repentance, it's going to probably feel really hard to get going on that if we, if we haven't been used to it. The second thing Swedenborg points out is that um, in his understanding, repentance and reformation is something that has to be started in this world, that once we get to the spiritual world, it's going to be too late for us to start in on that path. Now, the way I interpret that is, is really in light of, of what we just said about habitual action. You know, if um, it's not that we have to be perfect. It's not that we have to completely... Um, perfect or finish our regenerative process in this world, really only the smallest crack, the smallest sliver of willingness to, uh, to repent is necessary, I think. But rather, if um, we've never actually even considered the idea that we might be in error or that we might be wrong or that our will isn't the center of the known universe, you know, if we haven't done that in this world, we're not going to do that in the spiritual world either, because we are the same people in this world and the next. So it's really more a question of diminished probability. But, um, but overall, I think the answer is a really optimistic one. We, uh, even the smallest willingness to, uh, to understand that we are wrong, that we can be in error, that we are not always right. That's all that's necessary to get us started on the path. And it might be a lot of really hard work, but God will work with us, with any small willingness. And, um, and so it's not so much a question of losing God's love, but rather how much are we willing to open ourselves to God's love that is already working for us? How much are we willing to recognize that, uh, that we can sometimes be wrong? And how willing are we to step in with courage to the work that, uh, that will lead us to act in active partnership with, uh, with God and other people? Andre asks... Are all angels good? In the cosmology that Swedenborg presents, an angel, first of all, is not a separate race. An angel is just a person, a human being who on earth spent their time opting towards God and goodness and developing that heavenly mindset. So it's not something other than a human being that we, we know and love who has attained heaven. Um, yeah, so an angel is an inhabitant of heaven, and Swedenborg has some different terminology about the people that live in heaven. Sometimes he calls them angelic spirits, or only the highest uh, heaven's inhabitants are called angels, but they're all about the people who live in heaven. Now, there are a few references to the devil and his angels in the New Testament, and that can be confusing. But, word nerd, this is the word angel in Greek, angelos. And it means an angel, a messenger, someone who is sent. So um, it has a broader meaning than just what we think of as a, 
an ange an angelic being in heaven. Um, so perhaps a different translation for the devil and his angels could be like the devil and his minions or the devil and his henchmen. It's the people that are doing his bidding. And that's why that, that word is used there. It doesn't mean the happy, joyful, love-filled angels that we're talking about. Um, but in general, for Swedenborg, an angel is always good. Maggie asks, if spiritual struggles help us seek God, is there ever a time in life when we no longer have to struggle against evil and can still seek God? Or would that mean we are done here on earth? Well, there's good news, which is that these struggles, and Swedenborg uses various terms for them, temptations, crises of the spirit, trials, and so on, uh, that are battles between good and evil in us. The good news is that these things do come to an end. They have a finite amount of time that they take up for us. Some people get through with them while they're still living here in the physical world. Other people, their struggles continue into the first time in the world of spirits uh, where they go after they die. But in all cases, there's a finite amount of time uh, and they come to an end. And then love comes to be dominant in ourselves. The whole struggle is to get to the point where love takes charge. We don't start out there, but that's where we're going. And when we end up at that point, when love is in charge in us, evil can have no hold on us. It, it just has, it doesn't hook us anymore in the way that it used to. And that's exciting. And that can happen. Different people go at different rates. It's, it's sort of according to kind of what you can stand, you know, uh, how you get through these things. Here are a couple of passages in Swedenborg's works about that. This is Secrets of Heaven 8968. When faith with its truth begins leading us toward neighborly love with its goodness, we undergo crises of the Spirit. But once we adopt charitable goodness as our own, the crises end, because we are then in heaven. That passage is beautiful. It might raise the same question Maggie raises. Does that mean we're done on it? You know, like literally, do you physically die at that point and, and go off to heaven? No, Swedenborg's talking about our mind and heart going to heaven, entering a different kind of state uh, than we were in before. When these end, and it, it may be while we're here in the world, as I say, or it may be in the other world. But whenever that happens, that is when we are in heaven. Here's another passage that explains a little more. This is Revelation Explained 897, subsection 2. When our evils and falsities have been laid aside, then our spiritual crises are brought to an end, and then joy flows in through heaven from the Lord and fills our earthly mind. This joy is what is meant by consolations. All those who undergo spiritual crises receive these consolations. I speak from experience. The reason why we feel joy at that point is that afterward we are admitted into heaven, for by crises of the Spirit we are joined to heaven and admitted into it. This is why we experience a joy similar to that which the angels have there. And after that point, when love takes charge, then we're only closer to God than ever. Uh, so we're, in a way, maybe... We're not seeking God in the same way. We've, we've found God in a way. You know, we are in God. God is in us. And then the, the journey really begins. You know, that's, a, that's a, another stage of the adventure and even more exciting.
Such as the love is, such is the wisdom. Consequently, such is the man. This is a pretty popular quote from Emanuel Swedenborg's book, Divine Love and Wisdom. I assume after reading this short quote, it might still seem clunky and confusing, especially if you've never read much of Swedenborg's writings. But to me, it's a valuable treasure once understood, and in it lies the secret to the all-important link between every person that's ever existed. I grew up in a sect of Christianity that was a bit close-minded, often perceiving other religions and even other sects of Christianity as damned because of their interpretation of the Bible. For a long time, I believed any person that didn't know and practice the version of Christianity I understood would be doomed for eternal damnation. It included people who had never heard of Christianity or practiced its teachings. Seems crazy, but this is a common belief amongst many Christians today, that if you don't accept Jesus Christ as I view it in this life, there's no hope for you. Swedenborg has a totally different view on this. He asserts that your innermost self, or your love, is really what defines us and separates us, meaning what you believe cannot define who you are or what heaven or hell you go to. Contrarily, what you believe, combined with the actions you take, defines what kind of person you are. Your love, or inner self, combined with your wisdom, or truth that you live, creates you. This has summed up so much for me, in such a small quote. To me, it keeps me from judging others because of their lifestyle choices, or what God they do or don't believe in, but instead look more deeply at what drives a person to be who they are, to learn from the variety of good that comes from such different people, and to give me a stronger tool at knowing my strengths and weaknesses at their core and not at the surface. Huge thanks to the Swedenborg Foundation for helping me with these awesome tools for life. Terry asks, Will we have to deal with hellish influences on occasion when we reach heaven for future spiritual development? This is a great question. Um, and the simple answer is yes, but not in the same way or degree as in this world, in the physical world. Swedenborg says that um, heaven isn't just constant bliss, or really you could say that the part of the bliss of heaven is that we get to experience these variations of state that further our enjoyment of things. Um, so Swedenborg says that there's cycles in the spiritual world, like there are in this world, days and seasons, but they happen according to angels' states, um, states of love and wisdom or how they're thinking and how they're feeling, not physical laws. So in uh, Arcana Celestia, which is also translated as Secrets of Heaven, 8812 section 4 says changes of state in heaven to which morning midday evening and night correspond are not attributable to the sun there for that sun is always radiating heat and light that is the good of love and the truth of faith instead those changes are attributable to the recipients that is to say to the angels and spirits who move through a regular cycle of such changes as their life progresses at one point, it is morning, that is, they are filled with the good of love. At another, it is midday, that is, they are enlightened with the truth of faith. And at yet another, it is evening and night, that is, these gifts, these gifts become vague and dull with them. And I think gifts is a cool, the perfect word to use there. Um, so this passage describes cycles we go through and how the cycles are this variation in love and wisdom that we have from the Lord, 
but it doesn't really talk about hellish influences, even though the night and evening is when we have less love and less enlightenment from the Lord. But hellish influences are actually part of the means that bring about these cycles, even in angels in heaven. Um, so even though if you're in heaven, you're an angel who has looked to the Lord, practiced respect, repentance, and have opened yourself up to the Lord's um, love and wisdom. But as of ourselves, even angels in heaven, we are still evil. But it's that this evil in us has gone dormant for the most part, but it's still possible to get it stirred up on occasion, which is part of what can lead to the variations in our state. Um, in Secrets of Heaven 935.2, section 2, I mean, Swedenborg writes, regenerate people. So he's talking about people in this world or in heaven, because if you're regenerate in the afterlife, you're in heaven. Um, regenerate people go back and forth between having no charity at one time and some charity at another. <laughs> I love that it's only those options. <laughs> Setting the bar nice, nice and reasonable. Um, this is clear to see because everyone, even a person reborn, has nothing but evil inside. This is still quoting Secrets of Heaven 935. All goodness is the Lord's alone. Since the regenerate have nothing but evil inside, they cannot help seesawing, living now in a kind of summer in charity and now in winter, no charity. These cycles exist to bring them into increasing perfection and so into increasing happiness. Regenerate people go through these cycles, not only while they are living in the body, but also when they come into the other life. Without alternations that resemble those of summer and winter in matters of the will, and day and night in matters of the intellect, the regenerate would never be perfected or made happier. Their ups and downs in the other world, though, are like the summertime and wintertime changes that occur in temperate zones, and like the daytime and nighttime changes that occur in the spring. So once you're in heaven or regenerate, changes of state aren't so severe as they can be in this world or extreme, but they are still a matter of an ongoing balance between goodness from the Lord and evil from our sense of self. Um, and when, when the evil is more active, if it gets stirred up, a symptom of that is that we start to take credit for the goodness that we have in us from the Lord, which, like that first passage said, is really a gift. Uh, Swedenborg, so Swedenborg describes this in DP 79, Divine Providence 79, and, but pay attention that he's talking about an angel being let down into their evils, but that this is actually being used to deepen their understanding of spiritual truth. He writes, I have seen things that bore witness to this in some people in heaven. People who thought they were free of evils because the Lord was keeping them involved in what is good. To prevent them from thinking that they actually owned the good qualities they were enjoying, they were let down from heaven and back into their evils until finally they recognized that on their own they were immersed in evils, but were being held in what is good by the Lord. Once they recognized this, they were brought back into heaven. So, that describes a person whose evils are getting active, and so they, that sort of lowers them into a lower realm or even into their evils, but then they are, it's possible to get raised back up into heaven, and that that's just for the purpose of learning, understanding that goodness really does just come from the Lord. But that passage doesn't say how that evil really got stirred up in, in the angel. And 
it can actually be activated by nearby evil spirits. So it's not just sort of the hellish influences of our own self, but those can actually get stirred up by evil spirits, um, even, even if you're a person in heaven. And Swedenborg says, he describes it as like the influences of evil spirits acting like an agent in fermentation. Um, so here's sp- spiritual experiences. 1054 says sometimes, in fact, quite often evil spirits are permitted to slip cunningly into heaven. That is into the company of angels for this is being in heaven since heaven is not sep- is not a separate place, but rather societies having a heavenly character and heavenly intelligence. Sometimes, and when the angels of the inward heaven are in certain states of mind, evil spirits gain admittance by imitating goodness, and so putting on the appearance of being angels, for angels gladly let them in. But when they are discovered, which happens because of their disharmony, then they are cast out of heaven. The reason for this is that also the angels are thereby tempted and tested as to whether they are as heavenly beings ought to be, for their dregs, that evil, are ever clinging to them and must in the course of time be put aside. So the angels are led astray and their blemishes exposed. Evil spirits are like a ferment that stirs up evil. If the angels then let themselves be misled, then they too are banished from heaven for a time and undergo the appropriate kinds of chastening after which they are again let in. So I have heard several times, says Swedenborg. And that's an old translation. Um, but so that is sort of the same thing happening in the previous passage, but this is where there's this evil spirit that's let in and that sort of causes it or parallels what's happening for the angel in their own self. Um, now, that seems to belie the fact that Swedenborg also says that heaven and hell can't mix. You know, evil spirits and angels are of such an opposite nature that they just can't even get near each other. Um, in, uh, he even says that evil spirits, when they approach a heavenly society, fall into anxiety and torment and they just can't stand it and they want to run away. So to bridge these two things that Swedenborg says, like, oh, quite often, yeah, evil spirits are led into heaven and no way they practically feel like they're dying if they get near, um, is that uh, Swedenborg observed that what looks like an evil spirit affecting an angel is actually happening through intermediate spirits. Um, And so this is Spiritual Experiences 1085. There cannot be direct communication of evil spirits with any heavenly society. Nevertheless, when it pleases the Lord, such communication is granted by means of spirits of an in-between character. So it seems like in heaven, in the spiritual world, we are all connected. You know, heaven, the world of spirits in between, and hell, but that, and that they are always kept in this amazing, delicate balance by the Lord. And so whether it's an angel's change of their own state that makes their sphere slightly more permeable to the effect of evil influences coming up from hell, or that somehow evil influences are coming up from hell and that affects an angel's state. Um, In any case, I think Terry's right in asking that, or in wondering that, is this always for a person's spiritual development? And I think that that is definitely the case that the Lord's divine design makes it so that no matter what kind of back and forth might be happening, it is always and can't go any further than being for the spiritual benefit 
of anybody involved. Um, and so for the good, for the overall and progressive good of all. What do you think about being too emotional? What about being too loving that it's weird in this world? Lawrence. And that's a great question. And it is a weird phenomenon. We generally accept that at our core as human beings, we need to be loved and we want to give and receive love. So why would too much love be a problem? It seems like a strange setup, but it is. It doesn't always work. You think about relationships like a parent-child relationship. You'll sometimes have a parent who really wants to be close to their kid and they keep bringing love and bringing love, but it seems like that's actually having the opposite effect. It's like pushing the kid away. Or in any relationship, that there can be the opposite of the intended outcome when this love is involved in high levels. Why is that? As the human race, we generally accept that we need to all love each other and get along. I mean, people know that all over the world. People know that within societies, but it's very hard to get it done. Even though we have that baseline, it's very hard to get people to live together. Why? Why is it like that? Even near-death experiences, I think about people who go and have these spiritual encounters and they meet this great sense of a being of love or being totally unconditionally loved, when they come back here into this world, they often have a hard time reintegrating. Even though they have all this love for everyone, it just doesn't, it doesn't um, match with people. It doesn't, it's not assimilated people. What are you doing? What are you talking about? So why doesn't love, if love is the most important thing in the world, why doesn't it work in all these situations? And I think it comes down to what Swedenborg says about God. He says that God is love, but not just love. God is actually love and wisdom together. And that is a dynamic that may inform all of our situations. So if you, you have these feelings, right, you, have, you care about people, but without the knowledge of the means and the mechanisms as to how to help, you actually, it doesn't matter how much love you have because you're not going to be able to get through and get things done. For example, in relationships, you, know, you can have two people and a couple that really care about each other, but they keep getting in each other's way. They keep making each other upset and they can't seem to salvage the relationships. That's why you get these books popping up like, you know, the, the five love languages. That's where they did these studies and found out that there's people who interpret love in different ways. So you could be thinking, I'm just giving love to this person. I'm doing these things that are the most loving things. Why isn't it working? But to your partner, the way their mind is structured, that actually doesn't register as love. It registers as something else, and they feel like you're not giving them the thing that they do need. So there's this whole difference in the way that love is received, and that's a wisdom thing. You've got to know the mechanism you're dealing with, and that will create love. In the human race, we have these complex social dynamics, and there's all this study that goes into it. People learn about if group A is doing this, how does that affect group B, and how is group B going to react? We all have to know each other's needs and how things are affecting each other to get along with it. With near-death experiences, there's this complex re-entry because the nature of spiritual things is complicated. Swedenborg was finding, he, Swedenborg wrote 27 volumes. He could have just written one. It's all love, you know, page one. But it's not like that. There's all there's as much complexity and nuance in the spiritual world as there is in the physical. So what do I think? If you're feeling like you have too much love, you should try adding wisdom. Take some of that energy and put it into getting the knowledge you need to accomplish the things your love wants to do. Because Swedenborg says they have to happen in tandem like that. This is True Christianity 739. It says, Now you see that heavenly joys and eternal happiness are not a matter of where you are, but what your state of life is. A heavenly state of life comes from love and wisdom. Because usefulness is what contains love and wisdom, a heavenly state of life is a matter of the partnership between love and wisdom in usefulness. 
So it's not, it's not all love. It's love and wisdom together in the same measure. That's how they're able to accomplish something. Because when you say you have a lot of love, really, you're probably talking about you want to impact people in a certain way. You want to make them feel a certain way. You want to provide for their life. That's usefulness. And it's only going to happen if you have love and wisdom as close to this in the same amounts as you can. And that is what creates the state of mind that Swedenborg is calling heaven. So there's a couple thoughts on uh, love and, and the surplus of it. David asks, when you die, does everyone know your business from while you were on the earth? Are people shamed into hell? No, no one is shamed into hell. And actually, no, not everyone knows your business from while you were on earth. We know about the life review in near-death experiences. We know Swedenborg uh, talks about in the afterlife, people can read each other's minds. But Swedenborg also reports that the Lord is in control of this collective ability to know what's in each other's minds. And the Lord regulates who can know your business according to if it can be useful or not. And actually only the Lord knows all your business. We don't even know all our own business. Now when a person dies, when their physical body dies and they're crossing over into the afterlife, the Lord puts a protective aura around them. <clears throat> and this aura repels any evil spirits or lower spirits that would want to probe someone's mind and dig up dirt. So the only people that can be in this protective aura as a person's crossing over are very high-level angels who are compassionate and totally loving and do can and do probe the person's mind, but only for the sake of understanding the person better, knowing them better, um, looking for all the good and supporting it, and um, for being able to help them really well. Then uh, a person moves on into a life review phase of moving into the afterlife. And if you read the near-death experience stories, this life review happens, you know, just in the presence of God or, uh, you know, either in the form of just feeling a loving presence or in the form of Jesus or maybe with angelic beings um, at this screening <laughs> of the life review. But there's, you don't hear about a, a peanut gallery of critics or, you know, people uh, condemning condemning the person or anything. It's in, in a very loving um, atmosphere of just wanting to show the person um, the real quality of their life so they can learn and so they can understand how to move forward. And Swedenborg um, doesn't call it a life review. He calls it the book of life. And he says that <clears throat> only in, when... When a person's book of life is opened, same as the life review is happening, only the Lord judges a person's life. And in that context, judges doesn't mean condemns, because the Lord never condemns anyone, but it means shining a light on it, showing the truth, showing the quality of everything that happened. <clears throat> and so the person, the only one who is in charge of knowing the actual quality is the one who loves each person more than they can love themselves, which is the Lord. And so this, this judging, this discerning, this shining a light is all from love to help the person understand, to help the person be able to make their own decisions better in, in a clearer light. <clears throat> and in the Bible, the book of life is, is mentioned in the book of Revelation. And there is this scroll um, in one of the stories that has seven seals on it. No one can open it. There's lamentation. No one can open this scroll. But then along comes the Lamb of God, 
who can open it. And Swedenborg says that represents how the Lord is the one in this compassionate form, um, is the one who can open up our life and, and help us to understand it. So I'm going to read from Secrets of Heaven, starting with um, 8620. Swedenborg wrote, We each take the memory of all our deeds with us into the other life. So we take the book of our life. However, the Lord alone and no one else can judge us all by our actions. This is because everything we do proceeds from final causes that lie deeply hidden inside. It is by those causes that we are judged. They are known to no one but the Lord, so he alone has the right to judge. So think of that. Uh, uh, he's the one that can show us the causes, not only our own deeper motivations and goals, but also just show us the reality of the circumstances we were operating in. <clears throat> you know, the heredity we were dealing with, the circumstances, um, the not realizing things. And uh, from the Lord's compassionate view, um, we might be being harder on ourselves than we need to. Um, Secrets of Heaven 2474 says, Whenever we hear, see, or feel touched by something, <clears throat> the picture we form of it and the goals we adopt concerning it are instilled in our inner memory without our awareness. When we go to the other world, we take the memory of all these things with us and are gradually led to recall each of them. This is our book of life which is opened up in the other life and by which we are judged. All our purposes, which were unclear to us, all our thoughts, all our resulting words and deeds appear in that book or in the other, or in other words, in our inner memory down to the smallest jot. Whenever the Lord allows it, they lie open clear as day for angels to view. I have seen several demonstrations of this and such a large number of my experiences bear it out that I have not a shred of doubt left. So sometimes angels can be invited to the viewing, <laughs> but again, they are just—they are so loving and compassionate. They are only interested in order to know better how to help us. So uh, David mentioned shame, the concept of shame, which we all know a lot about. So shame is a response to knowing that we are flawed or have weaknesses or have made mistakes. And there are two possible responses to knowing that we're flawed. One is to try to hide that either from fear because we don't want to lose love or respect or, or from an attachment to something we want to do or be and we don't want someone to find out because they might stop us. So hiding is one response, but there's another possible response to knowing that we are flawed or have weaknesses or have made mistakes, and that's just to openly acknowledge it and not try to hide it, to know that it's completely normal and okay and Thus be open to seeking help, to learning, to developing, you know, a much more relaxed way of being because we don't have that fear. You know, we already know. Oh, I already know. I have a lot to learn. <laughs> so, oops. Yeah, gotta, gotta do that differently. So a big part of the purpose of the life review is for the sake of helping us realize things, <clears throat> not to condemn us, but to help us wake up to any harmful tendencies uh, that might block us from heavens so we won't hang on to them, so that we'll let God wash, wash it away. A healthy kind of regret, like, oh, that was terrible. I don't want to do that anymore. A healthy regret, like just realizing we've hurt somebody, feeling sorry, 
feeling like I don't want to be that way anymore and a, and a resolution to, to act differently next time, that's good. That can soften us and let God work to wash away harmful tendencies because nothing in our spirit can be washed away unless we agree to it. So Christian writes, in one of your previous videos, Curtis stated that Swedenborg claimed there were humans from other planets in the spiritual world. Did Jesus die for those humans too? In other words, was Jesus born and crucified simultaneously on many different planets? This is a very interesting question. First thing I think of is Luke chapter 2, where there's an announcement at the time that Jesus is born. And the angels say, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all people. Swedenborg's idea is that Jesus was born once into this world, but that was actually for people of all different worlds. Jesus himself later in his life said while he was in this world, I am the good shepherd. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. I think this is a little hint even in scripture that there was more than one world. He was talking to people in this world, but this was for other worlds as well. But how on earth would that work? How would information that God was born in human flesh get out to people given the vast distances of the different planets in this world? People have gotten very interested in exoplanets. They now say the closest exoplanet they have found is an exoplanet, meaning outside of our solar system, is in Alpha Centauri. It's 25 trillion miles away. An easy afternoon journey. Uh, <laughs> other ones are impossibly much farther away. The distances are just ridiculous in space. How are you going to get this information across to people on all different planets? Christians sort of conclude, did, did, is it possible that he was born on all these different planets? Or how would you, if you'd not, how would you get that information across? Well, Swedenborg has a whole chapter about this in his work, Other Planets, that's very interesting. And he says that, no, Jesus was just born on one planet, but the purpose was that that was for many planets, and here's how that was designed to work. Swedenborg says that our planet is unusual for two things, that it has the technology of holding on to written information indefinitely. We've had various different forms of writing and publishing and so on, but it's true. You know, like the Old and New Testaments have existed for thousands of years and they're all over the world. And they still sell, sell hundreds of millions of copies. Uh, this information is here and widespread. And Swedenborg said that's different from other planets. Another thing here, and a reason why it's widespread, is that we have commerce and international trade. And we've had this for thousands of years. They keep finding early and earlier dates that there was some ship that went down with all this merchandise from here. And we never knew that these people were in touch with those people. But this is a feature of our planet, that we're interested in each other. We travel a lot and we're in exchange and trade. And that helps the exchange of information. So Jesus is born into this world. Information spreads all over this world through trade and commerce and through printing and is preserved for thousands of years. The people from this planet die and go to the spiritual world. In the spiritual world, there's a connection between people. There's a heaven for each of the different planets. And then there's the highest heaven where there are 
all the different planets are together. People, spirits are at that level. Angels at that level are all together at that uh, in the highest heaven. And so information is able to spread more readily in the spiritual world. And so all people find out about this. That was part of the plan was to because the other, you know, the spiritual universe needs to know as well. They need the information. So they're told by people coming from our world, guess what? God was born as a human being. And, and this gets announced through the spiritual world. And then a lot of the other planets have people who are in touch with heaven. And that information is able to come from heaven to the people on other planets. And in fact, since Jesus is, is you know, was born and, and glorified his human manifestation here, he's able to manifest in a spiritual way before the spiritual eyes of people on other planets. And they've actually seen him. And Swedenborg says that they were able to compare what they saw with people who knew Jesus when he was in this world and said, yep, that's him. So this was a way by going up. Don't try to go across the trillions of miles. This is too far. Go up to the spiritual world across and down. That's how you can get the information out. So Jesus did not need to be born on all these different planets. He only needed to do that once. But he did have a strategy in mind to get the information everywhere in both universes. Here's the question from Casey. How would you respond to someone who says that all Muslims, Buddhists, and all other religions besides Christians are going to hell? Well, my first response would be that I disagree. Uh, Swedenborg gives this lovely view that people of all religions can go to heaven. And he makes the point that people come in such a wide variety that there have to be a lot of different religions to accommodate for the different kinds of natures that people come with. But he describes two essential components of any religion and they are a belief in the divine and living a good life. So although ideas of who God is or what the divine looks like may vary greatly, the saving grace seems to be a belief in some kind of higher power and then uh, living a life in accord with the divine laws that that higher power you know, puts forth. So I wanted to just read you this little bit from um, Heaven and Hell 318. The Lord is actually love itself, and his love is an intent to save everyone. So he provides that everyone shall have some religion, an acknowledgement of the divine being through that religion, and an inner life. That is, living according to one's religious principles is an inner life. For then we focus on the divine. And to the extent that we do focus on the divine, we do not focus on the world, but move away from the world and therefore from a worldly life, which is an outward life. So there's that idea that our job here is to turn more and more towards things of heaven and away from materialism and self-centeredness. Um, and there's another thing that I wanna read from Divine Providence. <clears throat> And I recommend this. There's a big section at the end, near the end of Divine Providence from 322 to 330 called Everyone Can Be Reformed and There's No Such Thing as Predestination to Hell. 
The first sentence of that section says, sound reason tells us that everyone is predestined to heaven and no one to hell. We are all born human, which means that we have the image of God within us. I think that's so powerful. That's the description of human. The image of God within us is our ability to discern what is true and to do what is good. And then there's this one line, it would fly in the face of God's love and mercy if anyone were born for hell when we are all equally human. So the Lord created us to be with him in heaven and he's going to give us the tools we need to get there. So in terms of different religions, the Lord has provided that there should be some religion almost everywhere and that everyone who believes in God and does not do evil because it is against God should have a place in heaven. Heaven, seen its, in its entirety, looks like a single individual whose life or soul is the Lord. In that heavenly person, there are all the components that there are in a physical person, differing the way heavenly things differ from earthly ones. If there are to be all these elements in that heavenly person who is heaven, it cannot be made up of people of one religion only. It needs people from many religions. So all the people who make these two universal principles of the church central to their own lives, that is a believing God and a living according to good principles, they have a place in that heavenly person that is in heaven. They enjoy the happiness that suits their own nature. So we can all get there. But of course, it comes down to our individual choices, no matter what our religious label is. It is our own choices all through life. And then when we get to the other side in our sort of education period, when we, when we get into the spiritual world, our choices there that determine where we end up in the spiritual world, whether we call ourselves Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish, etc. So there's room in heaven for all kinds of religions. All right, we did it. That's 10 questions. Hopefully you found it entertaining, informative, inspiring. And if you did, please consider liking and subscribing. That makes this go out into YouTube, and hopefully people out there find it and think, I was asking that question, and I'm glad that they tried their best to answer it here. That's how we get the show out. If you want to help make this programming possible, please consider making a donation. We're a nonprofit organization, and we're going to tell you a little bit here about our philosophy. We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins. Thanks everybody so much for watching today. Next week, if you want to join us, we're going to be looking at the text of the Bible, that much beloved, but also much controversial, spiritual... Uh, beacon for a lot of the world. A lot of other people are wondering what's going on in it. And we want to look specifically at why does the Bible say the dead know nothing? 
Does that mean that there's no life after death? How do you interpret that? What does Swedenborg have to say about it? We're going to check it out next week. Hope to see you then. <laughs>